Thanks for joining us at Keys for SLPs, opening new doors for speech-language pathologists to better serve clients throughout the lifespan, a weekly audio course and podcast from SpeechTherapyPD.com. I'm your host, Mary Beth Hines, a curious SLP who embraces lifelong learning. Keys for SLPs brings you experts in the field of speech-language pathology, as well as collaborative professionals, patients, and caregivers to discuss therapy strategies, research, challenges, triumphs, and career opportunities. Engage with a range of practitioners from young innovators to pioneers in the field as we discuss a variety of topics to help the inspired clinician thrive. Each episode of Keys for SLPs has an accompanying audio course on speechtherapypd.com available for 0.1 ASHA CEUs. We are offering an audio course subscription special coupon code to listeners of this podcast. Type the word keys for $20 off. With hundreds of audio courses on demand and new courses released weekly, it's only $59 per year with a code word keys. Visit speechtherapypd.com and start earning ASHA CEUs today. Welcome to this episode of Keys for SLPs. Keys to Being a Mindful Clinician, Part 2. I am your host, Mary Beth Hines. Before we get started, we have a few items to mention. We encourage questions from our participants. You can put your questions in the chat box throughout the episode for our guests to answer at the end of the episode. Here are the financial and non-financial disclosures. I am the host of this podcast and receive compensation from speechtherapypd.com. I am also a subscriber to professional education offered by Golden State Speech Pathology Services. Stephanie Swigert is the owner of Golden State Speech Pathology Services. She developed a course on mindfulness and receives compensation from the sale of it. Stephanie receives an honorarium from speechtherapypd.com for this presentation. No relevant non-financial relationships exist. And now we welcome our guest today, speech-language pathologist Stephanie Michelle Swigert. Stephanie founded Golden State Speech Pathology Services. She has operated this small family-run non-public agency for over nine years. She has experience in the acute care hospital setting, home-based early intervention, and charter schools. Stephanie currently supervises SLPAs, graduate clinicians, and clinical fellows. She has also supervised undergraduate clinicians abroad in Belize. She is a speaker and a board-certified continuing education provider. Stephanie has developed a digital professional development course for speech clinicians called the Framework to Becoming a Mindful Speech Clinician. All right, Stephanie, we are happy to have you back on Keys for SLPs once again to talk about being a mindful clinician. We were so fortunate to have you as a guest in episode 58, our last episode. Unfortunately, there was just not enough time to discuss everything we wanted to discuss and to cover everything we wanted to cover. So we are thankful that you were able to return to this episode, episode 59, Keys to Being a Mindful Clinician, Part 2. Part two will give us the opportunity to discuss scientific research findings that show how mindfulness affects the brain. We're going to cover four studies, and we are going to talk about that RAIN strategy again in different settings and how the RAIN strategy can be used in different settings to improve clinical effectiveness. 
And finally, we're going to go through some case studies with clients and professionals using mindfulness strategies while working toward SLP goals. So we're so excited and welcome back, Stephanie. So in other words, what you really meant to say was I was long-winded in part one. <laughs> no, well, in a, in a good way, in a good way. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mary Beth, for having me, for Keys for SLPs. Thank you to SpeechTherapyPD.com and to everybody behind the scenes for making this happen and for everybody who is joining us and coming back for part two. I think I just had so much information I wanted to try to squeeze into part one, and I, I thought it was also valuable, and I wasn't really sure what I could cut out. I wanted you guys to have all of it. So I'm glad to be back here. I'm glad to share part two with you guys. I think maybe before we recap, maybe we can just start by sort of settling into this space together. We're now in front of our screens and we're in this virtual learning opportunity together, putting away all other distractions and just kind of coming here and now in this space. And what we can do is we can start with, this is a really great practice that you guys can use, especially since we're talking about emotions. But a strategy could be saying positive affirmations. I want you to write these down if they align with your value system or if they resonate with you, maybe grab them from the transcripts later. But when times get a bit tough or challenging, we can remember these, we can recite these, we can call on these for inspiration, for motivation, just to be able to push through any kinds of blocks that we might be having. So let's start. I'm going to just say a couple positive affirmations. If you'd like to just repeat them to yourself in your head or out loud, wherever you are, that's, that's okay. All right. So the first one would be, if we're talking about emotions and you're having an emotion, you could say, it is okay to feel this way in this moment. Just tell yourself, you know what? It's okay to feel this way in this moment. Or we might say, I can work through my emotions right now to show up more fully and more present. I can work through my emotions right now to show up more fully and more present. There is wisdom in my feelings and they are important. There is wisdom in my feelings and they are important. I am always doing the best that I can do in each situation, and this may look different from time to time. I am always doing the best I can do in each situation, and this may look different from time to time. I am taking care of myself, including my emotions and my well-being. I am taking care of myself, including my emotions and my well-being. I value my feelings. And I value the feelings of others. I value my feelings and I value the feelings of others. So those are the positive affirmations because what it all comes down to and what it's all, what all of this is really leading to in part one and now part two is that we are coming to a place of understanding that emotions are okay. They are like a weather system. They come, they go, and we can have control over how we choose to respond to those emotions. And our emotions are always changing from moment to moment. Some may last longer than others, but there is an intelligence. There is a wisdom 
that is hiding inside of these guides. Emotions are guide systems. So we need to pay attention to those. And I'm really excited to be able to be here again and share tools and examples of how and why this practice, mindfulness of emotions, works when it's practiced. So as a quick recap, I know maybe some people may not have had part one. Part one is available in the course library. So be sure to check that out. But if you're here today for part two without having heard part one, a quick little recap. I shared in part one my own personal challenges and what really brought me to learning mindfulness of emotions. And I mentioned that Previously, I mentioned that I was sort of living from a place of this emotional roller coaster, right? I had the ups and downs and sort of getting lost in my thoughts and ruminating and going down that rabbit hole that we can do sometimes and all the thoughts that are swirling in our mind. And this would cause me to make impulsive decisions sometimes on the fly. And this kind of living, it just wasn't, it wasn't serving me and it wasn't helping me to build safe and trusting relationships. And it didn't really allow me to take care of myself, right? We need to take care of ourselves as number one. And then I I shared that along came Aubrey. Aubrey was the OT that I was working with who introduced me to mindfulness in 2011. And that changed everything. Meeting her really was a very pivotal point, as we say, in my life. And there was no turning back at that moment. So I want to remind everybody that We're hearing it a lot more all over, but Asha reminds us that in order to hold paramount, they say, the welfare of other people that we're serving professionally, we have to take care of ourselves. We must take care of ourselves. And we can take the proactive steps to do just that. So in in part one, we shared that some of these proactive steps, we looked at we all have common universal feelings that we all share that we can all relate to. So we can all relate to one another on the level of feelings in some way. And we mentioned how these feelings, if they're negative feelings, they can stem from an unmet need. If they're positive feelings, they can stem from a met need, right? So specifically, if you're having overwhelm or exhaustion, this could stem from an unmet need of maybe you were needing support and you didn't get it. So now you're overwhelmed or you're burnt out. So there there comes the wisdom, right? The wisdom that lies in our emotions. And the work happens, the work really takes place when we begin to come inward, when we begin to ask ourselves, can I be with this? Can I can I sit with this emotion? Can I lean into this to really get clarity? and get freedom. And I kind of I kind of liken it to those Chinese finger traps that kids like to play with or we had as kids and you put both your fingers in at the same time, right? And if you do, your fingers get stuck, you get trapped. And then you you immediately like as a knee jerk reaction, you try to pull your fingers back out. You go outward with your fingers. And the more you go outward with your fingers, the harder it is to release from that trap. And the trap actually begins to tighten a little bit. But once you learn to take your fingers and press inward in this trap, this actually releases the contraption. So this is the same idea with our emotions. When we're stuck in one, that trap or that emotion, the more we look outside of ourselves or outwards for answers, or the more we resist, the more suffering can happen and come from that. But if we learn to press inward, if we learn to come back to the center, if we learn to come inside of ourselves, into the center of what's happening in the moment, in our bodies, 
with our emotions, this begins to ultimately open up the space around us. It begins to free us and release us from the grip. So we talked previously about when emotions arise, we want to welcome them. We want to invite them in. They're our guests, right? We're not judging them, suppressing them, pushing them away, dramatizing them, but we're just, we're observing them, you know, like we would observe a client clinically. And then that's where the range strategy came in that we shared in our last course. So if you're new, I'll just summarize that really quickly. RAIN, the acronym, R-A-I-N. So the R is recognizing. So this is where we recognize, okay, I see that I'm, I'm in an emotion, right? So I might label it and I might say, okay, overwhelm. This is overwhelm. And then A, I allow it. Okay, I see you're here, overwhelm. Come on in. And we just allow overwhelm to be there. And then the I is investigate. So this is where is overwhelm showing up in my body? And maybe I kind of do a quick little body scan from my head down to my shoulders, my chest, my belly, hips, thighs, all the way down to my toes. And I'm, I'm sensing, do I notice anything from the inside? Maybe my head is throbbing. Maybe there's pain behind my eyes. Maybe I have a, this tightness that's showing up in my chest or my, my back or wherever this may be for you. Or maybe, maybe I'm not sensing anything. And that's okay too. Maybe just when you're investigating, noticing that numbness, maybe I'm not connecting to anything in this moment. And then the N is to nurture. And this nurture is the gift that ultimately we're giving ourselves. And that's when we're maybe saying words like, okay, this is normal. This too, it's normal to feel like this. This can happen. This will pass. I can get through this one breath at a time, right? And what this does, this strategy is this begins to relax our nervous system. And this gets us out of that place of like fight, flight, freeze. And it moves us now out of reactivity into a place of more clarity, a place of more wisdom, a place where maybe we can be a little more patient in our responses so that we can begin to show up in our best way when we are addressing any challenge that we have. And those challenges are going to continue to come. Mary Beth, that sort of wraps up our recap of what happened in part one. Well, thank you. And I did put that in the chat for anyone who is joining us live tonight and has access to the chat just to help us review. Also wanted to note that I did put the affirmations in the chat for people as well. So well, thank you, Stephanie. So I, I want to just get it out of the way with for, before we get started, because I promised last time that I would practice rain and I would report it. And yes. So, <laughs> oh, great. Sometimes I, I struggle to share personal things. So, you know, this is a little bit out of my comfort zone, but I, I also believe in following up on promises. So, and this is a I safe am. space. Th- this safe is a space. safe space. Yes, it is. <laughs> so first of all, I did practice rain quite a few times and I realized that I really don't attend to my emotions very well. I usually try to push them aside and move on. So that was the first big recognition. The other thing that I recognized, I'm more of a flight. <laughs> so when, when I do accept them, I, I fly. So <laughs> that was very, this, this is very informative. <laughs> Let's see. Also, the nurturing was, was very enlightening for me. 
So oh, okay. just, just this morning I, I had, I will, will share a little story. I was in a rush, which sounds funny to go to yoga class because I had dropped off my daughter at school and she was late getting to school and there was a car parked, not parked, but stopped in the middle of the road, wanting to make a left-hand turn. And so I couldn't get by this car because it's a narrow street and the person was on their phone in the middle of the street, looking down and didn't even realize that I was there. So at first I was like, but then I did my rain strategy and I just kind of nurtured it. So anyway, I also realized that's just a little story, but how important it is to embed the strategy into your life, because there were plenty of times where I could have used it and didn't use it. So there well, you have I, lo- it. I love that you shared that. And I'm curious, after you mm-hmm. had that experience with the person in the car in front of you, and you went through the rain strategy, and you did some nurturing. What did you notice at that point? Oh, I, I actually just, what I noticed was the irony and the comedy of the situation <laughs> after I nurtured myself, like, oh, if, you know, if I miss the class, I, mean, I don't know if you do yoga, but you know, once the door is locked, the door is locked. It's, it's very, you know, you can't really get in. So I just thought it would have been funny to, to get locked out whenever you're running late. It's a lot of things yes. that lead to it. Right. But you always kind of remember the last thing that may have made you late. So by the time I got to yoga and I did get in, I was laughing. So I love that. You know what I love most about that is that you thought of it in the moment because it, when we're first learning this process, sometimes we have our moments and then later we kind of sit back and think, all right, now, if I were to take rain and kind of work through this, because we can work through rain after the fact, it doesn't always have to be in the moment, but I love that you thought about it in the moment because that's telling me that it's popping up for you. And, and that's just the beginning. I mean, that's amazing that you even thought of it. So I love that you shared your story and I love that you've been practicing and I'm excited for your continued continued growth. Well, thank you. And thank you for pointing that out because, you know, sometimes when I'm hosting the podcast, I'm putting something in the chat and I'm I'm multitasking. So I didn't recall last time the fact that we can use the rain strategy, that it's good to use the rain strategy afterwards. And so I had a little guilt at different times when I didn't use it, like, oh, I should have used it, but then I did use it after. So it's good to know that that is encouraged. Yes, absolutely. So, all right, well, let's dive in if it's okay with you. One of the reasons we we know from our experience that mindfulness is important, but one of the reasons we wanted to come back tonight was because we didn't get a chance to go into some of the scientific research studies that support mindfulness, which will help us use these strategies in in the workplace as clinicians. And by having the scientific research, you know, it's always good to be able to show that to other team members and and back up what we're doing as we incorporate it into therapy. Okay. Well, yes, let, let's get to it. I mean, you're right. And we know that evidence-based standards really are the gold standard in our profession, in our industry. And these studies on mindfulness are continually accumulating. So, you know, the studies are really looking at the changes that are happening in the brain when mindfulness is practiced. And the research, it's so very exciting. I mean, there's there's a lot of research out there, but they're, it's accumulating and they're starting to look at the integration of mindfulness and autism and mindfulness and ADHD. So it's really exciting to see the new studies that are continually coming out. But let's talk about some that are already out. There are several science-backed health benefits to incorporating mindfulness practices into your life. 
And the first research article I really wanted to talk about is Carson J. et al. This is 2004, Mindfulness-Based Relationship Enhancement. And this comes from behavior therapy. And the purpose of this study was what they wanted to do is they wanted to test the success of this new couples program called Mindfulness-Based Relationship Enhancement. And they wanted to do it with the, with the couples practicing mindfulness, which, so it's, they wanted to see this ability to really tune in to the present moment as it is in, in a relationship, in a couples dynamic. And this would give the participants insight to what they're thinking and how they're feeling in the moment, how they're interacting with others, interacting with their partner. And it would really give them the opportunity opportunity to learn to choose wisely, have that pause and be able to choose wisely. And it was, it would set them up for strategies to be, help them out with moving away from our habitual conditioned responses into more of a choice, like a chosen response. Like we have a choice and I can make that choice and I can be more helpful when I do it that way rather than from a habitual way. And this study, what it did was it adapted the MBSR, and that stands for the Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction Course. This was a course that John Kabat-Zinn had created, and they used an adaptation of this as a means to try to enhance the relationships of couples who, these couples were basically considered to be in a typical and healthy relationship, a relationship without a ton of stress. And the scientists really wanted to see in the study if mindfulness or should I say couples who practiced mindfulness would have greater resilience to daily stress. If they spent each day practicing mindfulness, would this impact their their levels of happiness, their levels of their relationship stress, and and then basically just their overall stress. So they had 44 non-distressed heterosexual couples. And the participants only qualified for this study if they had been married at least married or cohabitating for at least a year. And they also had to take a test to show that the relationship distress and the psychological distress was not present. And they had to be couples that were not previously practicing meditation or mindfulness or yoga on a regular basis. The main age of this group of women were about 37 years old. The main I guess the the mean, I should say, age of the men was 39 years old. They were mostly well-educated people having done some, some type of graduate level study. And these participants all had at least one child. They were all Caucasian except for one African-American woman. And 37 of the couples were married and seven were cohabitating. And then the mean duration of their relationship was approximately 11 years. So this was really an opportunity for the participants to grow in their inner resources and to really build up those resources to as armor for strength, uh, for challenges and difficulties that would come their way. So these couples were broken into two groups. There was a group of couples that had a mindfulness-based relationship enhancement condition. So they were given eight weekly 150-minute group sessions, and they were also given one full day of a retreat where they were provided training and mindfulness and meditation strategies that they could practice. The other group was called the weightless control group in which these couples had to monitor or write down their daily stress levels at different periods of time. And then this data was provided to the scientists to measure the couples as far as what their stress levels were when they were not engaged in mindfulness and meditation. 
So the results of this particular study showed there actually was a correlation between the practice of mindfulness and improved relationships. The article itself states that there were specifically two distinct outcomes, two outcome domains that show that this type of intervention could affect relationship functioning and individual well-being. And that looked at relationship satisfaction, the closeness of the relationship, acceptance of a partner's relationship distress, like how well we're going to accept the other person in their times of distress. It looked at optimism, spirituality, individual relaxation, and psychological distress. And the outcome was positive. There was a positive difference for the couples who practiced mindfulness. So I thought that was an interesting first case study to share. There was another study, and this is the the second one I'm sharing, that was by, I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly, Chiesa A. and Soretti A. This was 2010, and it's called A Systematic Review of Neurobiological and Clinical Features of Mindfulness Meditations. And this came from Psychological Medicine. This particular study looked at mindfulness meditation as a type of meditative practice, and the purpose of this was to review current evidence on how mindfulness meditation can create neurobiological changes, and they also wanted to see what the clinical benefits were to practicing this type of practice for specifically psychiatric disorders, physical and physical illnesses, and also for individuals who were considered healthy subjects. So for this particular study, what it was, was they did a literature search and they looked through Medline, ISI, Web of Knowledge, the Corcoran Collaboration Database, and references of various retrieved articles. And there were some interesting findings that suggested that mindfulness meditation activates that prefrontal cortex. So that's the part of the brain that is associated with our impulse control. It's also associated with our maturity. And they they commented, the scientists noted that this part tended to be more active following mindfulness training. And the individuals who have a long-term meditation practice are showing enhancement of cerebral areas related to attention. This study also reported that mindfulness meditation can reduce the relapse of depression in patients, and there can be a reduction in blood pressure and even the possibility of certain styles of meditation, because there's many, many out there, that certain styles can reduce alcohol and substance abuse. And again, in the handout that you were provided for this course, there is a reference section, and you'll be able to find links provided for all of these case studies where you can find them. Our third one is by Lutz, Dune, and Davidson, and this is Attention Regulation and Monitoring in Meditation, and this can be found in Trends in Cognitive Sciences. This is 2008. So what this article did, this is the third one we're going to talk about. This article looks at the neuroscientific research on meditation, and it looks at its findings and its implications. So it says that that meditation 
the way it's looked at in this article is, is looked at as an emotional and intentional training. So they're looking at meditation as emotional and intentional trainings that are aimed to basically cultivate more well-being and balance in your emotions. So that's how they were looking at it in this particular study. So they had the participants engaged in two types of meditation, one which was focused attention meditation. And this is where exactly how it sounds. They're asked to focus their attention on one particular object and just keep their attention there. And then the other group, their style was called open monitoring meditation, which was what they say in this article, they quoted as uh, a non-reactive monitoring of the content of experience from moment to moment. So one where, you know, so to explain this a little bit more clearly, where we've got a focused meditation that looked at the participant being able to say, I'm going to focus on this object. If my mind sort of gets distracted, that's okay. I can notice that distraction and I can bring my attention back to what I'm focusing on, right? I'm not going to judge it. It's okay that I have a distracting thought. I can even take a breath, notice my breath and come right back to this, you know, what we're, what we're focusing on and, and attending to. And then for the other group, the more open focus being shown a variety of different stimuli and then being non-reactive to that stimuli. So the study, this theoretical framework was looking at the impact of these styles of practices and how they affect the attentional and emotional processes and what their long-term impact on the brain would be and what the long-term impact would be on participants' behavior. And it was determined that the amygdala, and this is the, the, the amygdala is a part of the brain that is associated with the emotional processes, right? They were saying that this part tended to be less active following mindfulness sessions. So the people who didn't have the mindfulness sessions were more reactive, more emotional versus the people that were practicing the mindfulness sessions. So, so the amygdala is what processes something as, hey, this is a threat. We need to, we need to get out of here. We need to be scared. This is this is something that's telling our brain that we've detected a problem or a threat and we need to either, you know, fight, flight, free. Like you said, Mary Beth, you know, when you contact your emotions, sometimes it causes you to flight, right? So that's that amygdala at work. So following those mindfulness sessions, that was softened, that fight, flight, freeze. So knowing that this part of the brain accesses that fight, flight, freeze, and it's less active following practices with mindfulness, essentially what you're not doing is you're not pumping out as many stress hormones now throughout your body because those those stress hormones are telling your body, you know, if you want to survive the situation, you've got to do something. Okay. So less of those stress hormones going through. And remember, not all stress is bad stress. Some stress is good, but we don't want our body to perceive all threats or all challenges as life or death, as, you know, that, that saber-toothed tiger that's coming to get you. And unfortunately, a lot of different challenges that we face, you know, if people are extremely reactive to them, that's how your body is sensing it as a life or death situation, even though it might not be. And we know that stress can be a silent killer, and we know that it can be responsible for, you know, a variety of diseases that are out there. 
So the final study that I want to share is Badeau, A, and Murphy. This is 2004, and it's called Does Mindfulness Decrease Stress and Foster Empathy Among Nursing Students? And this is from the Journal of Nursing Education. So what this was, this was a pilot study, and it was conducted with baccalaureate nursing students, and it wanted to see the effects of the MBSR program. So again, that mindfulness-based stress reduction course. I actually took that course. Um, It's fascinating. I took it in a hospital. It was five weeks. I took it in Hershey Medical Center back in 2011. It's a wonderful course, and they provide it at hospitals for anybody in the helping profession. So that's what they were using, this MBSR course, and they were looking at stress and empathy and how it would affect nursing students after they participated in this course, this particular course for eight weeks. It was an eight-week program. So they wanted to make sure that these nursing students were given a variety of tools that that they could use to help them cope not just professionally, but personally as well, and that would help them boost, help them boost their overall empathy. So there were 16 students 16 of these nursing students that participated in the course, and they were provided various guided meditations that they could listen to. They could listen to them at home. And then they were asked to complete different journaling assignments. And remember, there was also eight weeks of this participation of this course. You've got the eight weeks of the course, you've got guided meditations at home, and you've got the journaling that's supposed to be happening. So then the scientists went ahead and they measured stress and empathy using what they called a paired sample t-test. And what they found was that in this participation, the nursing students showed significantly reduced anxiety following this type of course and this type of training. And there were also trends that showed that attitude and total stress were positively affected. And there were additional benefits that were found when these nurses continued a regular home practice, these home meditations, because what was happening was these participants were journaling and they were writing about having greater overall life satisfaction. They were having greater well-being and that they were improving in their coping skills as a result of this, of this course, this program that they were taking. So the findings, what they're doing is they're suggesting, you know, that that being mindful and bringing mindfulness into your life personally and professionally, it may decrease stress. It may increase your overall well-being. It like for the nurses, it set them up with coping skills. It can set you up with coping skills. And it also decreases, in this particular case, the study mentioned that it decreases the nurse's tendencies to take on others' emotions. Because we know in the helping field, we're around a lot of emotions with our clients, right? And that's not empathy. That's not empathy if we're taking on others' emotions, especially if they're negative emotions, right? Empathy is really saying, hey, I know how you're feeling, but it's not it's not holding on to those emotions so tightly that I feel like I need to fix it. It's just, hey, I can put myself in your shoes. Just make make sure you're getting back out of those shoes, right? I can put myself in your shoes and and understand where you're at and how you're feeling. But then I do need to get out of your shoes. I can't 
burden myself by carrying the weight of all of those emotions and letting it impact me negatively. So, so I'm just, I'm relating to your experience to what your experience might be. And what happens is this helps reduce stress and anxiety because you're not carrying those burdens with you now as you leave your client and you're moving on throughout the day and you're now interacting with other people or being productive, you know, with, uh, with other assignments. So those will be four case studies. And again, there's a lot of, there's a lot of research out there. It, there is a lot of accumulating research, but I grabbed some that I thought would be pertinent to this course specifically since we're talking about emotions. Well, those are all very interesting and helpful to to back the mindfulness that we want to take into our clinical lives as well as our personal lives. So thank you for sharing that very thorough review. So let's let's dive into the RAIN strategy now. Let's see. You've reviewed it, and I think we're going to talk about bringing it into some clinical, different clinical settings. So um, how can we use that in early intervention school adults or use it with families and caregivers or use it with workplace challenges. Yes. Okay. And I love that you tried it. You tried it. So and yeah. I'm hoping everybody here has has an opportunity to really practice this because it's a strategy you can use in both your, your personal and your professional life. You can use it by yourself. You can teach it to others. It can actually be done in pairs. You can work together in pairs. So perhaps you and your your client, like maybe it's maybe if we're looking at it, you as an individual and you're caught in maybe a negative self-talk, right? Or you have a client that's caught in some harming thought patterns. You know, they're they're telling themselves things over and over and they're kind of stuck. Rain is a quick tool that you can use for support in this. And an appropriate time would be to use it when maybe someone is feeling anxious or someone is feeling overwhelmed or someone's feeling angry or upset, right? If someone is in an intense behavior and we're like we're like going up the scale on on how intense this emotion is this is not the time to use it but practice it when we want to learn it and practice it, we want to bring it in when our emotions are small and, and, and little. Okay. So think of like waves in the, in the, the ocean, we're not going to start to, to swim the big waves right away. We're going to take on the little baby waves. And as we get comfortable, we'll, we'll go into the bigger ones or otherwise we're going to get knocked on our feet. Right. So remember that when you're practicing it, you can, you can start small with this. So let me, let me tell you how I put this into action with a little boy that was in, he was on my caseload at a charter school. And this was a few years ago. He had a lot of negative self-talk. This was occurring in speech class. He had negative self-talk in the classroom. This was being reported by the parents that they were seeing it at home. And it there was it was happening frequently. And he was an elementary student. And when things got hard for him, he would make comments like, no one likes me. I'll never be good enough. I can't do it. I suck at this. I give up. I'm sure, you know, we've all we've all maybe had moments we've talked to ourselves like that or we've we've heard our clients saying things like that. And he would get stuck in this pattern, right? Whenever things were hard, whenever there were challenges and parents reported in the IEP meetings that they were seeing the same thing in the home and they were concerned by this naturally as as parents as parents would be. And this type of behavior can be really self-harming and it can be unproductive. It can create a block where maybe now this student may not be able to access his full potential based on his limiting beliefs and his negative thinking, right? We've all, again, we've 
we've all been there. I do want to normalize this, but having these beliefs, they just don't, they don't serve us and we can be our own worst critics and our clients are no different. So if, you know, if we're talking about rain and we're, we're, we're putting it into this example that I'm sharing, I used it with this client. Rain is we're working with our own clients who are exhibiting emotions that are coming from unmet needs, right? So we want to make sure we are not dismissing these thoughts or these comments that are coming from our kiddos or our clients or our patients. And what we're going to do is we're going to honor and we're going to accept this is what's happening right now in the moment. This is where we are. This is their experience. This is what is alive for them. And what we're going to do is we're going to slowly begin to work through it bit by bit so that the client connects to what they're experiencing in the moment so that you know ultimately some self-compassion can be cultivated. So in the case of this little boy, you know, I'd I'd sit with it. I'd sit and I'd recognize and I'd, I'd see what feelings were arising. You know, you can kind of, you can kind of tell what's going on with your client. You can start to become aware of it. And if you're not sure, you can ask too, if you think it's a certain feeling. So I'd I'd say to this little boy, I'd say, Hmm, are you feeling frustrated, buddy? Are you feeling frustrated? Because, you know, this is hard. And he'd say, yeah. And I'd say, yeah, you're right. This is hard. Or maybe he'd go, yeah, I don't want to do this. I don't like this. This is awful. And I'd say, yeah, you're right. You know, this is hard. This is frustrating. Okay. You're frustrated. And I see that you're feeling frustrated. Or, you know, if it's a different client and they're like, I'm not frustrated, I'm, you know, fill in the blank. You just, you repeat that back to them and you just allow it to be there. So I was allowing this kid to be frustrated in this moment, in his experience. And then I'm not trying to fix or change it. I'm just trying to observe it. So now I'm kind of clinically watching emotion, you know, and I'm, I'm holding space for it. I'm welcoming it. And I'm saying, all right, buddy, no problem. We can say, we can say hello to frustration, right? So we labeled it in R and recognize it. I labeled it for him. I'm like, oh, you're feeling frustrated, but now we're going to allow it. So I'm letting him know like, hey, I welcome it. You can bring that here. This is a safe space, right? So I'd say like, okay. Hey, you're frustrated. We can say, Hey, frustration. What's up? You know what? I see you. I see you're here visiting me and you can kind of tailor your, your sentences to make them age appropriate, whether it's a longer sentence or a shorter sentence, you know, whether you're kind of talking to a kiddo or an adult. So I might say, Oh man, buddy, frustration. It's there. All right. Hey, frustration. You're joining us in this session today too. No problem. Welcome. Welcome to our table. Right. And then we can investigate. And that's the eye. So it's like, where do we sense this in our body? You know, where do you feel that frustration? So I might say, oh, okay. So you're you're frustrated or you're mad. Hey, buddy, where, where do you feel that? You, do you notice anything going on in your body right now? And sometimes in the moment, your client might be open to this. Sometimes not. You can kind of get a read on that. This particular client, I remember I was like, he was like, well, I'm just mad. And he'd put his hands on the table and I said, oh, okay, do you, do you feel that madness in your hands? It looks like you're, you know, I might guide him squeezing your hands or you're, you're squeezing your hands. Or when I get mad, sometimes my teeth clench. Oh, my jaw's really tight. What, what, what do you feel when you get mad? And you can keep it lighthearted and fun. And what you're doing is you're, you're trying to show that aliveness in the body. So that child or that client understands when we have a certain feeling or certain emotion that what we think our mind and our body are connected and it can show up in our body, right? So now we might say, oh yeah, I noticed, oh, your hands are squeezing or, oh, you're feeling really tense in your your teeth, right? So that's, that's what you're noticing when you're frustrated, buddy. Yeah, okay. 
And then lastly, we might nurture it. So a nurturing is, it. this is giving ourselves that compassion. So that's this moment of saying, you know what, this too, this is part of life, right? This is part of being human. So you can tell yourself, you know, it's, it's, it's normal. So I might say, it's okay, you know what? Yeah, it's normal to feel frustrated when things are hard. Yeah, we can feel mad. It's okay to feel mad and, and frustrated. That happens sometimes in life. And then we might follow up with, you know, this, this work is hard right now, but you have support and we can practice this, buddy. All right. No problems. We've allowed it. We've recognized, okay, this is frustration. Hey, frustration. We've allowed it. Hey, welcome frustration. You can be here too. We've investigated. Ooh, you're sensing that frustration in your hands. And then we're nurturing it. That's okay, buddy, that, that, you know, you got frustration. This happens. This is part of life. You know what? It's hard right now, but it might get easier. So that's that growth mindset language, right? Where we're kind of saying, this might be hard now, but we can get better. This might be hard now, but you have support. Maybe if you have um, a client with dementia that's frustrated, right? They're frustrated because they can't remember where they, they left things or they have certain skills they used to be able to do and they can't do those skills anymore. When they get frustrated, we're not dismissing that. We're not even trying to make them feel better, right? We're not telling them that, oh, it's okay. Well, you know, we're basically saying we see you. We honor this is where you are. We recognize that frustration is happening in this moment, and we're going to allow them to be frustrated, okay? And if it's an adult, you know, we're going to try to maybe connect with the body. We might say, hey, Patricia, you're frustrated. That's all right. Do you, do you feel that showing up in your body? Where do you feel that frustration? Can you sense where that is in your body when you're frustrated? And, and maybe they're like, no, and that's okay too. Some people can't connect to that or there's some numbness. We might say, okay, just notice that too. Notice when you're frustrated, maybe there's just some, some numbness there, right? Or we can kind of guide them, you know, if we notice anything. Do you, you know, sometimes I kind of feel, Patricia, when I'm, when I'm forgetful or I don't know where something is and I get really mad, oh man, my, my chest tightens up. Does that, ever, does that ever happen to you? So you kind of guide them and then just nurturing them. So, you know, saying to Patricia, you know what, this is frustrating. I get it. This is, this is not fun. You know, you used to know where things are. You used to be completely independent. You're noticing now that, that right now you're not sure where things are. You can't find things. You're frustrated and that's hard, but you know what? This feeling will pass. You can sit with this frustration. I'm here with you right now to sit with you. While you're frustrated, this feeling is going to pass. You probably didn't feel frustrated when you first woke up this morning. You might not feel frustrated an hour later. You might start to get hungry or you might start to get tired or other emotions are going to come. This will pass, but this is what's happening for you right now. And it's okay. We can breathe through it. Maybe we can take some deep breaths together and let's just wait for this feeling to pass. And when it does, we'll move on to what's next. And what we're doing is we're giving that space and that freedom for whatever is happening in the moment, for whatever is alive in that moment to be accepted, to be validated, and to know, you know, we we can just sit with this. We can be free from resisting it. And we're waiting for that energy to move through our body. We're waiting for it to move through us before we're doing anything else, before we're putting any more demands on our client or demands on ourselves, or worried about that next goal or that next target item that we have to work on. 
So again, it's just waiting for that energy to move through and to process. And then when it does, we can show up for our next task. And then what's happening is now we're showing up in a way where we can show up a little bit more present. We can show up a little bit more fully because we're not carrying with us all of that intense emotion that we were just sitting in. We're a little bit more clear. We're a little bit more wise. Sometimes this can take a few minutes. Sometimes this can take a lot longer. And I know some of you might be thinking, well, I have goals to get through and I only have a limited amount of therapy time or only a set amount of time with with this person or I have productivity levels or, and my answer to that or my response to that thought, it's a normal thought, would be just try to remind yourself we we're working with humans. We are working with human beings and human beings who may need our support right now more than anything in, in the times that we're living in. I mean, we're in some tough times. So the choice is the choice is really yours on, on how you want to approach it. And if we don't give that space to allow whatever is there to be alive in that moment, what is going to happen is we're possibly not going to have as productive as an outcome in whatever it is that we're working on. Because as everyone knows, when we're caught up in a place of really intense emotion, we're not coming from a place of wisdom and clarity, and we're not really present with what's going on because we're stuck and we're blocked. So to have more productive outcomes, to have better results, to have more centered attention, more focus to have our client really hear us and to be with us in the moment, we, we really need to work through whatever intense emotion is showing up and we need to support them. And that's one strategy to do that. And I will say with the charter student that we worked with, the, the charter was really amazing. They were on board. They have this whole growth mindset language that they incorporate into across everywhere in their curriculum, across everything that they do. The parents were on board. You know, we were on board in speech. We're practicing RAIN. We're practicing growth mindset language. A year later, we met at the IEP. And as a whole, a year later, the parents were reporting that they saw less and less of this negative self-talk. Did it cure it? No, it didn't cure it. But it found a way to work through it so that the student was able to, in a sense, recover more quickly, get back to work, get back to learning, show up more fully, be less reactive, and be less stuck in that habitual conditioning. So the parents were very happy to report that they saw productive outcomes from these type of strategies that the teachers were on board with. I was on speech was on board with, the parents were on board with. It was a it was a team effort and the student was gradually on board with with learning. So that was that was great news to hear from the parents when they reported that at the IEP. Oh that that is great and great for you to be part of that and watch that happen throughout the year. So I do have a question about that. Yes. So once you introduced the rain strategy and you gave the frustration example, did you make it part of your routine in speech that you were going to identify whatever emotions he was feeling that day or did you just use it when it was applicable when you when you sensed an emotion? So because I've been doing it for so long, so what I'm hearing you ask is like, is it routine to kind of keep it going for a student to learn it? I think because I've been practicing this for so long, it kind of comes quickly and naturally to me that I, it's not a long process for me to get through. I can kind of talk through it. It has become part of my dialogue with all of my students with emotions. It's just something that naturally comes up because our, our students, as we know, they can, there can be positive emotions too. There can be excitement. It's like, 
whoa, are you feeling excitement? Hey, excitement. What's up? High five. Yeah. You did a good job. That feels good. Oh, do you, do you notice any good feelings in your body? So, and you could tell yourself, wow, give yourself a pat on the back, you know, but it just kind of comes naturally for me. So with this student, yes, anytime or any other student, anytime there's an emotion, I do recognize it. I do quickly touch on it. I do remind them that it's okay that that emotion is present. It's a safe space to be there and we can work through it. So with this kiddo, it was just, he was somebody that he, it was constant. There were a lot of challenges. He had a lot of challenges. He had a lot of learning difficulties and a lot of obstacles to overcome. So it did come up a lot with this particular student. Yes. So you usually use it as it comes up naturally versus at the beginning of each session, we're going to say, okay, let's, you know, check in to our emotions. Yes. Great question. No, in the moment. Yes. Okay. Now okay. I will say that there are, there have been, like, I remember one autistic student that I was working with that refused to come to speech class and dropped down and he was in the hallway and it was a, it was a whole thing. And that was not, he was, it was, there were big behaviors, there were big emotions that were happening. There was a big communication. There was a lot of messages that he was trying to share. So in that moment, it was not the best time to do that. So there are times that I will follow up afterwards and I'll reflect back and say, Hey, what was going on, buddy? Yeah. Were you feeling? So there, I'm going to recognize it, but it's after the fact and we can talk through it with high school students too. Like if they come and they've got concerns or they're down and out and we can't really start our work because maybe there's something going on with one of their friends. It's like, well, let's talk about it. We can always journal about it. We can write it out. I think I, I think if I, I think I shared this actually in the refresh and recharge course, I shared a handout where I actually write it out with students. I can actually share some examples of like with the students, you would say, I feel, and you kind of work with whatever they're feeling. And we talked about how there's an unmet need. So what they're needing, and that's a great time to say, okay, so you're, you know, once they identify what they're feeling, recognize it, you're feeling X, and they're, let's let's talk about it. let's journal it out. If you want to work on syntax, and you can write out the sentences. All right, let's just allow the space for that to be there. We can sit with that, and and with the older kids, you can kind of have that conversation flat out. Like, do you notice that in your body? Like, I really want you to try to connect your your mind to your body. I want you to understand that your emotions, when you're feeling these emotions, they do affect your body. It can affect your stress, and it could it could create problems for you. So you know, you can talk in a different way than I might have talked to my elementary kiddo in the charter school. And then it's like, hey, what are what are some things you think you could tell yourself? Like when you're having your your trouble with your girlfriend or your friends, or you know, you, you saw you got a text from someone that you didn't like, or you saw something on social media that really bothered you. What are some positive things you could tell yourself? How could you nurture yourself? And you can work through that in a dialogue. You can do it after the fact as well. Excellent. Excellent. All right. Well, we started at a time we don't normally start at. What about, have you ever used this strategy with families or caregivers, not with the client themselves? I've actually used it. Yes. I've actually used it with SLPs and SLPAs, specifically ones, you know, looking at our emotions and thoughts. And I actually asked kind of, I like how you're sharing I actually asked some people if it was okay, if I could share some of their experiences. And I did get permission to share this, but I have a, a fellow SLP colleague. Her name's Charlene. She worked in the schools. She transitioned to a clinic and she's now working from home, providing teletherapy. And prior to learning these strategies we talked about today, she was experiencing conflict 
worked at one of her sites and, you know, she wanted to stick up for herself and share what she was feeling and needing. And she was very nervous to do so. And she didn't want to sound blaming or risk losing her job. Right. But she felt that what she had to share was quite significant and would be really good feedback to the organization that she was working with. But at the time, prior to learning these strategies, she sort of remained silent. Right. She didn't want to ruffle feathers. And she didn't really have the tools or the inner resources to fully show up in the way that she would need to. So she'd try to ignore what's happening. And that's that suppressing of the emotions. And, and she'd try not dealing with it. Or she'd try to that fight, flight, freeze, flight, try to ignore certain people. Right. So she didn't have to be around the challenges. But as we all know, difficulties still have their way to, to find us. So she she participated in, in some of my strategies and particularly this rain one. And these are her exact words. She gave me permission to share this because she has had positive outcomes as a result. And she said, I always liked the idea of mindfulness. I was introduced to it in grad school, but it didn't really click and I did not take the time to do the work. I was easily sucked into the cycle of anxiety rather than processing my feelings, slowing down and being mindful. Before I took the time to learn mindfulness strategies, I coped with stress and conflict in the workplace in unhealthy ways, such as trying to ignore difficult people or situations. I would shut down and would rather not deal with it. However, practicing mindfulness of my thoughts and emotions has been transformative. I'm now able to acknowledge my emotions and allow myself to have them. It is okay to feel frustrated and exhausted due to the demands of being a speech pathologist. Once I acknowledge what I'm feeling and allow myself to feel, I can then be mindful in how I will act or respond. Rather than responding from a place of reactivity, I have learned to respectfully communicate my needs and set boundaries. These strategies have helped me advocate for my needs and my clients' needs. I've come to understand that I have the power to choose my response. So what I'm hearing her say, I just, I just love that. Is I that, love that. Thank you, Charlene. I know. Thank you, Charlene, because she is, she's learning tools so that her emotions are no longer getting the best of her, but that she's recognizing her emotions. She's working through them. She's learning how to show up in a way that's wise, in a way that's compassionate. She's learning to find her voice. She's learning to get her power back so that she can advocate for what's needed and no longer be fearful of the circumstances, but she can show up in a way that's brave, wise, confidence. I mean, she has strengthened her inner resources and has learned a process to do so. She's taking the steps to transition from living in a place of reactivity into living from a place of choice. So, you know, instead of the flight options that she previously took of avoiding people, she's now showing up and she's now showing up in her power. And I have another one. I have an SLP. I love this one too. If I can share quickly. Oh yes, please. Yeah. I, I was given her permission also to share this. Her name's Sarah. She's an SLPA. And She shared with me that she's learned a lot from these mindfulness practices. And and she said that, you know, quieting thoughts has always been a struggle for her. And she reported the strategies were helping her so much with her thoughts and emotions. And, you know, these are so closely tied together, the mind and, and the body being tied to one another. And here's what she says after implementing the practices. She says, mindfulness is a beneficial skill for speech clinicians. When overwhelmed in a job, you can feel worthless and lose sight of the positive impact you make on people. 
And bringing focus back to the present allows clinicians to work at their full potential. Being mindful also helps to recognize the emotions that affect our physical being. We learn to acknowledge the feeling and give ourselves permission to be human. It's not about holding an uncomfortable feeling to get through a moment or altercation with a coworker, rather allowing feelings to be and finding the space that allows us to engage with thoughtful intention. And the importance here, what I'm hearing is that Sarah has found a way to allow her feelings to express themselves when the time is right. She's not holding back how she feels, but she's accepting her feeling. She's finding her space, that important pause, connection to herself to let, again, her energy move through her. And then when she's ready, she's showing up to engage with that coworker, or maybe they're was some type of altercation. And now she's showing up in a thoughtful way, in a way where she's expressing wisdom because she's processed it. And like she said, she's giving herself permission to be human. That's the nurturing. That's the self-compassion. That's the end of rain. Telling yourself, I'm human. I'm giving my permission. I'm giving myself permission to be human. And if we have time for one more, I have another awesome one. <laughs> I just... I, we do. I think we we, we can uh, squeeze another one in here because that is such a good example. And thank you so much for sharing it. Because it's powerful. It's so, it, it is powerful. And I think some of us were taught to, um, you know, you, you really want to be professional in your, uh, in the workplace and leave emotions aside. So I think... This strategy is very good for managing the emotions that are going to come up because we are human and we're human outside of work and we're human at work. So, yes, absolutely. And you're right. We are, we are taught to sort of keep emotions. Emotions are, especially in the big corporate world, emotions are not really welcomed, right? It's too touchy feely. But if, if that's the case and that's the environment that you're working in, or maybe you feel too vulnerable, this is something that you can work on, on your own, aside, you know, journal behind closed doors and you can process and work through. But yes, I'll share one more. I know, I know we're out of time, but I really like this one. This is from an SLP that gave me her feedback. Her name's Katrina. And I, I think this is, this is going to relate to so many people. She says burnout is real in the school setting, especially even more now after the pandemic and students have returned to school 100% of the time. There's been more refer- referrals, more meetings, more demands with less support, and more employees leaving due to burnout, et cetera. Excessive meetings have been a very stressful situation for me this school year. And this training has taught me that slowing down, slow breathing, Meditation and taking breaks as needed are very important to minimize burnout and stress. She says, I feel more balanced and optimistic, motivated to work. My body does not feel as tense as it used to be. We really do not focus on self-care and healthy strategies. And I believe these concepts are imperative to learn to minimize burnout, frustrations, and possibly leaving the career eventually. I mean, that says it all. When Katrina is mindful of her emotions and thoughts and she listens to the wisdom from her feelings and her body, she ultimately is having better physical health. She said her body does not feel as tense as it used to be. She feels more balanced. She feels more optimistic. She feels more motivated to work. And that, everybody, that feeling of being more motivated and optimistic, that is going to produce better outcomes. 
Absolutely. Stephanie, Michelle, thank you so much for coming back tonight. Thank you for sharing the research. I think you have given us a lot of good examples that we can take back to our personal life and our work life with research back that it it helps brain health. It reduces our stress level. It helps our clients. It helps our motivation on and on and on. So many examples. I really appreciate it and would love to have you come back again sometime. We'll give you a break for a while. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) So thank you very much and have a great night. Thank you. Thanks for joining us here at Keys for SLPs, providing keys to open new doors to better serve our clients throughout the lifespan. Remember to go to speechtherapypd.com to learn more about earning ASHA CEUs for this episode and more. Thanks for your positive reviews and support. I would love for you to write a quick review and subscribe. Keep up the good work.